Today's Old Testament text is Numbers chapter 21, 4 through 9. They marched from Mount Hor on the Red Sea Road around the land of Edom. The people became impatient on the road. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why do you bring us up from Egypt to kill us in the desert where there is no food or water? And we detest this miserable bread. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people and they bit the people. Many Israelites died. The people went to Moses and said, We've sinned, for we spoke against the Lord and you. Pray to the Lord so that he will send the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a poisonous snake and place it on a pole. Whoever is bitten can look at it and live. Moses made a bronze snake and placed it on a pole. If a snake bit someone, that person could look at the bronze snake and live. This is the word of the Lord. I'd invite you also this morning to turn to the gospel text today, which comes from the gospel of John, the third chapter. John chapter 3, beginning today at verse 14. And if you're present with us and able, I'd invite you to stand in honor of the Lord's word. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so must the human one be lifted up. So that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him won't perish but will have eternal life. God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him isn't judged. Whoever doesn't believe in him is already judged because they don't believe in the name of God's only son. This is the basis for judgment. The light came into the world, and people loved darkness more than the light, for their actions are evil. All who do wicked things hate the light and don't come to the light for fear that their actions will be exposed to the light. But whoever does the truth comes to the light so that it can be seen that their actions were done in God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I hope, um, I hope you won't think I'm strange uh, today, or at least more strange than you already think I am. Um, but oftentimes in travels, especially opportunity to kind of travel around the world, my, my love of history tends to make me interested in going to at least a museum or two in major cities uh, when we go travel. And, and some of those obviously are museums that celebrate um, the history of that place or some of the cool museums like when you go to Washington, D.C., you can see the Air, Air and Space Museum and museums of technology and, and natural history museums. Those are all kind of fun. But, but the museums that I tend to be drawn to most and the ones that have tended to make the biggest impact on me are actually those museums that have, have been built as memorials to really the low points and broken moments in human history. Um, Noah and I, a few years ago, uh, went on a work and witness trip to Hungary, and we got to spend a couple of days in Budapest on the way out, and we went to a museum called the House of Terror, uh, which is right in the middle of downtown Budapest, uh, a government building right on the corner, looks very innocuous, 
But it was a place where during both the fascist and communist regimes, it was a place that was set up. And you, if you were summoned there, that was not good. Um, you were usually summoned as somebody suspicious to those movements and to the state. And and no one, I talk about it often. The most impactful thing is down in the basement, they have preserved the rooms padded so that no one could hear the people scream as they were tortured and methods of execution still left in place. Deb and I, a few years ago, got to go to Johannesburg and we went to the Apartheid Museum. And I'll never forget um, the signs for race classification that have been preserved that divided the society and Rooms with nooses hanging in them to represent all of the people who were killed over political division. Pictures and videos over what's called necklacing, where people considered subversive to the state. You put a tire around them, fill it with gasoline or petrol and light that on fire publicly. I've been to the to the Museum of Tolerance in Los Angeles and we'll never forget the the hall of testimony, video after video, person after person sharing their story of survival, especially in the Holocaust. If you ever get a chance to go to the U.S. Uh, Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., it's, it's transformative. But the, the thing I remember most is they have a rail car there, one of the rail cars that, that took people to concentration camps. And you have to stand inside and you have to think about what would it mean to be packed in this rail car with people terrified, knowing they were headed to their death? There's a Holocaust museum also in Budapest, and I will never forget a room that is just a big pile of children's shoes. Again, Noah and I were in Jerusalem a few years ago, and, and we went to maybe the best-known Holocaust museum in the world, Yah Vashem, the Mount of Remembrance in Jerusalem. And you really, you could spend two or three days there. There's so much to see and experience. But the part that stuck with me is a room called the Hall of Names, where, where the names of all of those who were lost in concentration camps are listed, but pictures, as many as they could get. And, and there's a cone in the ceiling. The ceiling goes up in a kind of, in a cylinder, and, and you lean in and you look up and it looks like the pictures of those who've been lost will just go on forever. Why do we build those? Why do we build museums and memorials that remind us not just of history's greatest accomplishments, but why do we build museums, so many of them, that remind us of history's greatest atrocities and and maybe if you're still with me this morning, you might ask, and why in the world would you attend them? <laughs> why would you want to go visit them, spend time in them, be impacted by them? I believe that we build them because they remind us of humankind's capacity for hate, for violence, for evil. But not just in a way, hopefully, just to kind of say, hey, look at it. Be shocked by it. But we build them and we, if you will, we lift it up so that we can say in remembering and acknowledging and in lifting it up in front of us that 
that our hope is that we might be drawn to something different than what we see there. That a different kind of way of living and behaving and being neighbor might be lived out by the generations to come. This morning, if you have a Bible, if you'd put something in John chapter 3, if you'd go back with me to Numbers, the 21st chapter, the strange Old Testament reading for today. And it is a bizarre one, I have to admit. I've known the story a while, but I do not remember learning this story in children's church. I do not remember a felt board version of the people of Israel being killed in the wilderness by vipers biting them. I do not think there's a veggie tale version of this on the way anytime soon. But in the story in Numbers chapter 21, the people have been brought out of Egypt. They are wandering in the wilderness. And now we have a familiar pattern for us. They are not happy. They are complaining. They are frustrated with God and more and frustrated with the leaders. I love God has been giving them manna, but it's gotten a little old now. And so that they are complaining and groaning and turning against their leadership. We know that story. That is a familiar story. We also know this part of the story. The further they get away from Egypt, the more their their memory of that experience is shaped by nostalgia. And the further they get away from it, the more they forget about the pain of slavery and what they endured. And the more that didn't seem so bad. I don't know if you've experienced this. But I've been told that there are sometimes people who can remember the good old days better than they actually were. (laughs) And they become nostalgic and long for them and even complain and sometimes turn against their leadership. But that's another day. Um, But there's an, so that part's all familiar. The unfamiliar part of the story is this. Usually when they complain and groan, Moses comes to God and says, thanks a lot, God, for leaving me with these people. They're complaining, they're groaning, and they're turning against me. What are you going to do, God? And God says, well, all right. Tell them to go stand out there, and I'll I'll let some quail just fall out of the sky. That'll make them happy. Take your staff, Moses, go down. Strike the rock. Water will flow out. All right, maybe they'll stop complaining for a while. That's the familiar pattern. So the unfamiliar part of the story is this. They complain, groan, turn against Moses, and God says this. Well, let's try killing them. <laughs> let's try that out. And so poisonous snakes, God unleashes poisonous snakes that begin to bite them and they begin to die. And now they're not as unhappy as they were before. about <laughs> That didn't seem so bad. And now they complain because, rightly, because this life cannot continue if we continue to be bitten and be, if this poison continues to infect us, we will die. And so God has Moses take a rod and, and I'm not sure how he did it, whether he got the artisans together to form a bronze serpent or whether he killed a serpent and dipped it in bronze and put it on a pole, I don't know. But he lifts up the serpent, and as the people behold it, as they look upon it, they are healed. It's a weird story, bizarre story, but the point of the story is simply this, that the life that they are unleashing, the life of bitterness, complaint, animosity towards themselves and their leaders, 
God has basically said, all right, let's try this. If that's what you want, let me unleash that on you. And the serpent, which is such an important symbol over and over again of brokenness and evil and temptation, that symbol then begins to be the source of their destruction. But the odd thing is, God has Moses lift that symbol of their brokenness, sin, and destruction, lift it up, and when they look at it and realize, oh, that's what we're becoming, somehow that becomes an an opportunity for them to be healed of that and no longer continue to be destroyed by their bitterness, animosity, and contention. Are you with me? The reason why this text is put there today, if you'll go back with me to John chapter 3, if you've been paying attention over these first few weeks of Lent, the Old Testament readings have all been covenant readings, starting with the covenant with Noah and moving to Abraham, etc. But all of a sudden in the lectionary, they insert what's not really a covenant text, just this bizarre snake story. But the reason Numbers 21 is thrown in the lectionary here at the Old Testament is because it's referenced by Jesus in this very familiar conversation in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. So that Jesus talks about all the ways that that story relates to who he is. Now, if you have chapter 3 open, this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus is often thought of as a kind of secret meeting between a leader and Jesus. And it may very well be this. In fact, that's the way I kind of think I was taught it and the imagination that has shaped me most is this idea that Nicodemus is really curious about Jesus, but he's a little afraid what his friends are going to think. And so he has like a midnight meeting with Jesus, right? Jesus, I got a whole list of questions. Don't tell my friends. Like, what's this all about? And that very well may be the case. I've kind of been converted to a different way of reading the text. Many scholars argue that nighttime was a time when the community kind of gathered together. You, you had dinner, went around the campfire, told stories, and then the leaders would kind of go into a tent and oftentimes have kind of conversations about the future of this group, of this leadership, or gather in a house to have this conversation. So if you have it open, in some ways it reads better as a kind of confrontation at night between Nicodemus, this person that John tells us has all these leadership credentials in the community, and then Jesus, this sort of upstart rabbi, if you will. So if you have it open, here's verse 1. There was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a Jewish leader. He came to Jesus at night and said to him, (coughs) Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could do these miraculous signs that you do unless God is with him, right? Totally buttering him up for this confrontation. Jesus interrupted and answered, Hey, Nick, I assure you, unless someone is born anew, it's not possible to see God's kingdom. Nicodemus <laughs> asked, How is it possible for an adult to be born? It's impossible to enter the mother's womb for a second time and be born, isn't it? And Jesus answered, I assure you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, it's not possible to enter God's kingdom. One of the things I love about the Gospel of John, especially the first part of the Gospel of John, is John sets us up over and over again in these kind of scenarios to help us think deeply about Jesus. And usually they're shaped around a kind of dumb question, if you will. So in the second chapter, Jesus begins his ministry in Cana at a wedding. 
Remember the story, they ran out of wine, Jesus turns the water into wine, and then the wine steward tastes it, goes to the wine groom and says, this is so strange. Like, you are the coolest bridegroom ever. Most of the time, when you're going to throw a big party like this, you get the expensive wine, you bring that out first, and once everybody's kind of tipsy and they don't notice, you bring the cheap wine in. But you, you have saved the best wine for last. Now, here's why this is important. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are gospels, I would argue, that are meant to be read by people who don't have faith in Jesus yet. They're meant for us to read and by the end of the gospel be convinced that Jesus is who he said he is and we should follow him as a disciple. John, on the other hand, as Pastor Diane mentioned last week, is kind of a mess in some ways. Doesn't really care very much about the order in which he's telling Jesus' story. But I'm convinced that John is really written to most of the people probably in this room or online People who already believe, but the gospel takes us deeper into the reality of who Jesus is. So we tell the story of the wedding in Cana already knowing that is so dumb that he thinks this is about wine. But we know this is about a God who has worked through Israel all over and over and over, revelation after revelation. But now in Jesus, he has saved his best for last. And we can celebrate the fact that we believe and have experienced God's best revelation. God's best stuff is now, right? And then the text that Pastor Diane talked about last week, Jesus says, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And they say, what are you talking about? It took 40 plus years for us to build this temple. You'll rebuild it in three days? But we, we believe, we already know, oh, knuckleheads. He's not talking about the building. He's talking about his body, that he was dead and raised on the third day. And now we are the temple. After this story, Jesus will go to a well and he'll have a crazy conversation with a woman about water and she will ask a dumb question. You want water but you didn't even bring a bucket? But we know he's not talking about water. He's talking about a source of life, the spirit that's been given to us that flows out of us, living water, right? And once you have that, you'll realize, well, you're always going to need water physically to live. But once you have that living water, oh, life is rich and abundant and eternal and you'll never thirst again. And then the next story is about bread. And the disciples say, oh, man, we forgot to buy lunch. But we know, he's not talking about lunch, which you shouldn't even be thinking about because this is an hour earlier, (laughs) right? So I have plenty of time today. You shouldn't even be thinking about lunch yet. But we know he's not talking about lunch. He's talking about what it means for us to constantly feed on the presence of Christ in our midst, to gather around the table, to partake of bread and cup, to partake of his word, to feed upon who Christ, like that's what we know, right? So when Nicodemus says, hey, I have to go back to my mother's womb, we go, oh, no, no. No, what he's talking about is this life that you and I have experienced, this life in which we put to death the old and we've come to a whole new life in Christ Jesus. And we are living out this new creation life, this new birth that has transformed us into what we were created originally to be, reflections of who Christ is. But in the text for today, there's one other line that Nicodemus doesn't get that we get because we're believers. And so, again, if you have the text still open, go with me to verse 14. So this is where the numbers story comes in. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so must the human one, or the son of man, so must the human one be 
lifted up. Now hang with me for a moment. So this story started back in verse 1 with Nicodemus coming to Jesus either secretly at night or in front of a crowd to accuse him, coming and saying, hey, listen, you're the son of God, right? I mean, what's going on with you? How do we know? I mean, you're doing great miracles, but how do we know, like, who you are and how, why do you get all this authority? And so he responds, listen, the Son of Man, the human one, must be lifted up, which I know for Nicodemus immediately took his imagination to Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of Man is lifted up and exalted above all the nations and all the empires. And so in his mind, he has to be thinking, what Jesus is saying is, hang on, buckle up, great things are coming, I'm going to be exalted, and then you'll know who I am. There will be glory and power and exaltation, and everyone will believe because you see me lifted up. You with me? But what do we know already? We know he's absolutely not talking about that at all. That's why there's that big cross behind me. Because we know what he's talking about is being lifted up in front of everyone to be crucified. And if he is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. And somehow if he is lifted up like the serpent was lifted up, the world will be saved. What in the world? In referring to the cross, you and I know that he is not referring to an act of glory, but an act of shame. And like many other execution methods throughout human history, it is an execution method not meant just simply to kill the one we have determined to be subversive, dangerous, and our enemy. But it's an act of execution that publicly draws attention and says, do not do that. That's why in so many places and so often in our own history, we've hung people. And we've hung them not just because it's a speedy, efficient, low-cost way of killing your enemy. But because so often in our history, we've left people there. So that everyone can see when you act contrary to the ways we expect people to act, that's what you get. You want to do it? We have more rope. It's the reason in ancient cultures where you killed your enemy and you put their head on a pike. So you could say to everyone, don't mess with us. It's why so often in our own history when when people were lynched, they were lynched and left in public so that we could keep an oppressive system in place and say to those people, do not dare resist this system. But here is what's so crazy about this symbol. Is it still the symbol we gather around today? And 
And why? Because in some ways, like the serpent that was lifted up to say to the Israelites, are you going to continue to kill each other? Are you going to continue this poisonous, backbiting, complaining, vindictive life? Or do you want something that will heal you? When Christ is lifted up, and by the way, the reason we build those museums is very similar because there are moments when we realize there is violence we have enacted against the scapegoats of history, and then at some point we realize, oh, wait, they were innocent, we were guilty. So we go to those places to be reminded of all the innocent victims of history who are scapegoated. And we gather beneath the cross and Christ is lifted up. And when he is lifted up, in John he says, the light will shine in darkness. And so in the season as we gather around the cross, we are reminded that when Christ is lifted up, there is not an innocent person remaining at the foot of the cross. Not even the religious are exposed as good but are as exposed as people using their religion to misuse others. So the cross reminds us of a kind of life that we have entered into and we too often embrace. And it exposes all of our darkness, but the reason we hang on to it is because that's not the final word. Because Christ says, I didn't come to condemn the world. I came to save it. And so you don't hang up the serpent in order to say, see how despicable you are, but to say, do you want something else? And we hold up the cross, not just to say, oh, look how sinful and broken we are, but we hold it up to say, God offers us something else. A new creation, a new birth, a new life by the Spirit. He didn't come to condemn, but he came so that we might be saved. Transform, change broken patterns of poison and destruction and sinful humanity. Replaced with the spirit of goodness and mercy and love that transforms us and all things. The cross is not God's way of condemning the world, but God's way of shining a light in our darkness in order for that darkness to be removed. Thanks be to God. But I'll say this. (laughs) Jesus is offering new birth, a new creation. However, that new creation can only begin with the acknowledgement of our need for the light to come and for the new to come. Every once in a while, especially when you pastor in a holiness tradition, people will ask you questions about why so much crossy stuff, right? especially in a Lenten season. Why so much confession of sin? I thought holiness people were free of that. Holiness people have been made, made free of that. Set free of that. Which means we are not embarrassed to come beneath a symbol that continues to reveal all the ways we and the world are broken. Because we are not willing to keep hiding in shadows and corners of darkness. But we are more than willing to say, search me, O God, and try my heart. 
See if there are wicked ways in us today. Because we're tired of the life that led to that cross. And we desire the life that that cross initiates now. So a strange thing happened to the bronze serpent. So some of you, um, again, children's church, major failure, never told us this story. So maybe for some of you, this is the first time you've ever heard that weird story. But if some of you have heard it before, maybe you've wondered, what happened to that serpent? Well, it's kind of cool, actually. So the people of God took that bronze staff, that, serp, that, that bronze staff, and they put it in the tabernacle. And later, in 2 Kings, the 18th chapter, Hezekiah is king. And he realizes, and this is important, he realizes that the people have begun to be shaped. It's not that they're not religious, but their religion has shaped them back into the patterns of destruction and brokenness. And he realizes in particular that that symbol that was supposed to be a symbol to bring healing to them had now become like a magic amulet that people were worshiping, hoping that it would kind of heal them or be this kind of blessing that would sanctify their life right? That they were misusing the serpent. And so do you know what Hezekiah did? He smashed it into pieces. Because they were worshiping the serpent, the bronze staff, but they were not being transformed. Which I've wrestled with in this week. What has the cross become for us? What has the cross become for us? As Christians, we have to confess that we have misused the symbol of the cross oftentimes across Christian history. When Constantine became emperor of Rome, it was great for us because it kind of ended persecution at some level in Rome. But it also meant now that Constantine would, would paint a symbol of the cross on his shield and now go conquer enemies in the name of Jesus. That habit continued on for centuries in many ways. So that crusaders and others would go out to, to kill the enemies Jesus invited them to love in Jesus' name. Our history of colonization also under the banner of the cross has meant there are nations and cultures in our world who resist Christianity still to this day because they do not see it as a, as a symbol of transforming love in the world. They see it as the symbol of oppression that came and took their land. It's become a symbol of intimidation. So certain groups across history have decided this is a great way to intimidate those we don't like put it in their yard and light it on fire. Too often in the church, the cross has become a way to tell abuse victims and those who've been persecuted just to stay quiet. Rather than calling into, into account the darkness in our own lives, we've used it as a way to continue to suppress the darkness. For some, it's just become trivial, a talisman, a lucky charm we wear. 
For some, maybe for many, the cross has become a fashion accessory at best and a sign of oppression at worst. Perhaps, like Hezekiah, we should shatter and smash all the ways that we have misused the cross. But thanks be to God, it still stands. <laughs> As a reminder of our sin, but a reminder of our sin that has been met by the matchless grace and mercy of God who did not come into the world to condemn us, but came into the world to save us from all of the ways we were poisoning each other and destroying the creation that he loves. It's a constant invitation to enter by the Spirit into a new birth, a new life that is shaped not by that broken life of sin, but by the transforming work of divine love. And everyone who's entered into that life says, Amen. And so this morning, as we do every Sunday morning, especially during the season, we come and we gather and we lift up on a cross a reminder of our brokenness that is also the reminder of a love that will not let us go. And so the one who has been lifted up is also now exalted and given the name above every name. This morning as I, I think about this text, um, Nicodemus's confusion about what it means to be born again. I couldn't help but think that there, there may be some this morning who are here or watching online Maybe this is the first time you've ever heard about what that thing means. About what the cross is. And maybe this morning, by the mystery of God's spirit and grace, the tug of God's spirit has been saying to you, that's you he's talking about. Can you, can you see the sin that is clinging so closely the poisonous ways that are bringing destruction to you and to others. Can you see it? Do you want to stay there? Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be changed? Do you want to be transformed? The good news for us is in the same way the Israelites could not heal themselves, we cannot make ourselves whole, but God's grace can make us whole. And there's no mountain we have to climb. There's no thing we have to do. There's no public display of our you know, whipping ourselves. There's simply an acknowledgement that the sin displayed on that cross includes ours. But the love and grace displayed on that cross includes us. And we can offer ourselves simply to say, God, forgive me. I want that new life that you have for me. And God is faithful and just, and he will give you that new life. 
And I don't think there's a special way you have to do that to receive that. Now, let me do say, in just a few weeks on Easter, we're going to baptize some folks. And if you know that's you and you're receiving that grace, we would love to almost drown you in a few weeks. There's some folks who are coming, who are saying, I want that. I, I don't want this old life. I want that new life. And we, they will enter the water as a sign. They want that to be put away. And then we're going to hold them under in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and have them come out as part of the resurrection life and receive a new life. And we're going to clap and celebrate that all things are made new in them. And we would love to do that with you, not because it's the only way, but that way when the serpent sneaks in and says, are you really new creation? You can say, yeah, I still feel wet. Yeah, pastor held me under uncomfortably long. I have put to death the old and come to the new. We would love to do that. We would love to do that. But some of you in this room and online who've been wet for a long time, We are not simply Christian because somewhere back in our history we prayed that prayer or entered that pool. We are Christian because we have continued to come this morning to gather and be reminded of the patterns of sin that are too destructive in our own lives and in our world. To confess that we are the converted and being converted. We are the transformed and being transformed. We are the holy and being made holy. We're not afraid of the light because the light makes all things new. Because Christ didn't come into the world to condemn us. He came so we might be honest about ourselves and receive his grace. And so that through him, the world might be saved. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory My richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small love so amazing so
Almighty God, as we uh, gather beneath the wonderful cross, we do such a strange but transformative thing today. We come and stand beneath a form of execution that reminds us of all of the ways that we fail to live into what you have for us. All the ways we fail to stand with those who are hurting. All the ways that we hold on to our agendas and even the ways at times we hold those agendas and then sanctify them. but we come because we want the light to shine in our darkness. And we do not want the life that we form on our own, but we want the, the new birth, the new life, the new creation, the, the life that brings salvation, not just in the future, but in the present. So I pray for some brothers and sisters who are in this room or online or who may see this this week or next year or five years from now. Who hear and feel your spirit calling them to something deeper and richer and better than the broken pieces they hold in their hands. So we offer ourselves and all of our sin to you because we know you have not come to condemn, but to transform. So we release them to receive your new life. I pray for those who in a couple weeks from now on Easter Sunday will live that out bodily, will put to death the old and come to a whole new life. God, make this a time of that newness taking hold in every corner of their reality. For those of us who have been baptized, may today be a reminder and next week a reminder and the week after that, a reminder that we are a people filled with your spirit in whom you are bringing about your newness. A people who sing, we're the whole realm of nature mine. That's still an offering far too small. For love so amazing, so divine demands my soul. Our lives are all. So receive our all today form us to be your people. May we bear your name rightly. And may we be shaped by your cross rightly in the world. For we pray this in the name of the exalted one. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And God's people said, amen. Would you stand with us?